Judges chapter 17. I don't know who said what to whom, but it's nice to have the church warm, don't you think? What that tells us is it can happen. That it's possible is what this tells us. So, I know. The book of Judges, well, let's pray and we'll jump right in. Father in heaven, we seek your face. We seek to know you better, your love for us better, your desire for us more. And I thank you for the privilege of this time tonight. Please have your way. And I thank you for how your word is active and living, sharper than a double-edged sword, able to divide joints and marrow, soul and spirit, as a discerner in the tender thoughts of our heart. And Lord, I pray that tonight you would do the work you want to do here. Lord, teach us from Micah's example, from Ephraim's example, from Dan's example, from Laisha's example. There's so much to learn. So, Lord, please help us to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say tonight as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your authority. There are 13 judges listed in the book of Judges. Othniel, Yehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Abimelech, Tolaya, Er, Yipsa, Ibzan, Elon, Abdon, and then Samson. And that concluded in our last chapter. What we have in the remaining chapters, really, really, now the next few chapters that conclude the book, is just sheer spiritual anarchy. It's spiritual free-for-all. This is where God introduces the statement that we sort of pull from so much in this time that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is where God starts to really bring that out. And it's important to note that even the scene that we're going to see is going to take place at the very burial site of Samson. We're going to see two different places. There's Oren Eshtaol. And it is right in between those that Samson was buried. And that's exactly where this is going to take place. And it is important to recognize that in a couple of ways as we kind of apply it to our own lives as we start to look at this. We're going to see a lunatic here in this sense. A, a Levite for hire. He's roaming. We're going to see the tribe of Dan take land that wasn't initially given them and what that's going to look like. And we're going to see a guy, this guy Micah, who's just... It's, it's just the kind of thing that's normal when there's no standard, a biblical standard. And this is why it applies so deeply to where we are today. We live in an age where everything is a fighting definition, is fighting any form of clear, practical, this is right and this is wrong. And even among the church, we find a lot of that. And, and, and because of that, what you find is, is that there's a part of us, we're so busy trying to be inoffensive to the rest of the world because we know that when we take our stand on what things really are, that we know that we're going to get some kind of resistance and heat from it. Uh, heat actually isn't a bad thing recently, but everything else would be, would be, uh, would make your evening a lot worse. And so what is the result of that? Well, we don't realize the consequences of actually kind of just doing this sort of salad bar, you know, kumbaya, everyone be cool for what they are kind of thing. And that is such a European view. You know, I mean, I, I love places like the Middle East where if somebody disagrees with you, you know it. 
And, and, and you may not like the fact that they disagree, but at least you don't leave thinking, wow, they really were listening and they were really intent. You know, here we'll smile and we'll nod and we'll kind of do this and we'll walk away with no intent to sort of act on it in any way. And, and, and understand here, that sort of spiritual free for all, where it's like we're just going to tolerate everything. It's sort of like a big buffet line. You just pick whatever you want from whatever God you like. You want a fat God, we got those. You want a, a Middle Eastern God, we got one of those. You got an Indian, you can do that. Whatever you really want, we can kind of put together. You know, and what you find is, is that the church, you may not think the church is doing that, but this is basically the way the church lives if what we want is all of God's blessings, but we won't take any of his contingencies. This is where we go. Is so we're kind of like, we'll claim all of these things. We'll say, well, this is what God said he was going to do for me. But we don't actually see that there is something that God says, if, and then a then. We just take the then. So we're going to say, oh, the Lord is going to direct my path. But we don't see the part that says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not upon your own understanding in all your ways, acknowledge Him. Because those are the things required for the Lord to direct our path the way we, you know. It's, we, we play so low on the, well, tr- you know, delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. And all we get is, oh, the Lord's going to give me the desires of my heart. But we don't even see there's a, there's a preface to that. And that's if we really have to delight in the Lord to see that happen. And we claim all of these things. It's sort of like showing up tomorrow. We all fly to Cupertino. We show up at Apple headquarters and we ask for a paycheck. And of course, they would laugh us to scorn because none of us work there. And without working there, there's no reason to sort of cash in on the things that we're required to pay to be paid for. And yet we do that in such a way where we kind of just say, well, God just wants to give me all of these things. Now, we, we understand that we still are living on grace, but there's a lifestyle that bears forth the fruit of those things. And it's like, and here's the craziest part to me is we live these convoluted lives where we kind of feel like we could kind of just stick both feet in the world and occasionally do something we think is sort of remotely godly. And then we think God's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant in the end. And I, I just don't understand that. And what we don't see is the fruit of that. And what we're going to see tonight is that. We're going to see that in this spiritual anarchy, in this spiritual free-for-all. And in the first six verses, there'll be the setting. And then really in the 7 through 13 of this chapter, we'll see kind of the the focus, the star of the show, if you will, uh, as we kind of see the Levite. And then we kind of see how Dan plays in it, the tribe, not Daniel Taylor, uh, in the next chapter. In all of this, beloved, uh, please understand, may God, as we see this, pandemonium, may God strengthen us to say, God, give me your standards. Give me your wrong and right. And tell me what's right and what's wrong and what's black and what's white. And and just make it clear to me. 17 verse 1. There was a man from the mountains of Ephraim whose name was Micah. Mikayahu. Who is like God is his name. And this is how he's introduced. Imagine if you were watching this as a play. He said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you, on which I, you put a curse, saying it even in my ears. Here's the silver with me. I took it. The first thing we meet about this guy is that he's a thief. But he's more than just a thief. I mean, there are guys that steal for different reasons. But he stole from his mother. And what he stole was 1,100 shekels. Now, that probably doesn't mean much to us. Uh, it doesn't the same as a shekel is today, perhaps. But understand, this is kind of how it would play out. If we kind of do it the way it would be, like let's say, let's say a shekel is roughly about 11.34 grams, and, and silver at the moment is roughly about 35 pence a gram, that puts 1,100 shekels at about 4,365 pounds and 90 pence. Roughly about 43, 4,400 pounds. Well, that's a lot of money to steal from mom. 
I mean, one pound is too much to steal from out. But notice in this, by the way, as he's introduced this way, we don't read that he was at any point a decent kid and he kind of went astray or anything like that. We kind of just meet him as a thief. That's how he's introduced from the beginning of this. And as it's the case, he, we realize that the guy is returning it now that he has a curse that seems to be upon it. And it is important to kind of develop at least for a second this in regards to the years of, of the church. That's us. Because of what Romans tells us in Romans 13.5, for instance. We've developed this prior for a little bit, but I really want us to kind of get this into our ears. Understand, if man is born evil, and that's the way that the Bible teaches us, we are not born good people that got that led astray. We are born evil people, bent on our own destruction, selfish, self-centered, self-serving. And in that, you put a bunch of people like that in a room, how do you keep them from killing each other? How do you keep them from just abusing and using each other? You set up laws and standards. Here's the problem. A law means nothing without consequences because people are not naturally driven, you nor me. We are not naturally driven to obey something simply because it's a law. You know that. Paul would actually say, I didn't even know what it meant to come until I was told not to. Then all of a sudden I was like, what? It's like, don't touch that thing over there. And you're like, what? What thing? What thing? It's amazing how intriguing something is once it's forbidden. And with that... We know if we try to take an, a, a world that isn't governed by Christ, we're, talking about not, we're not even talking about the godly church. Uh, we're talking about now just an unsaved world. How do you keep them from raping? How do you keep them from murdering? Well, what you do is you create consequences strong enough that the consequence would be so bad that it'll keep you from doing the crime. And that, if you will, is called wrath. The wrath that comes from earning your wrong. And until we knew Jesus Christ, we were driven that way too. Now, maybe some of you were in a nicer home or perhaps, and to be honest, if you were in a place where there was some sort of sense of driven obedience, it's more than likely because your parents, early on in your relationship with them, gave very harsh consequences to your disobedience. And somewhere in that, you were ingrained with the idea disobedience is a bad idea. It bears forth really negative consequences. When we got saved, something strange happened. God placed within us His Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit spoke to us in such a way that we developed a conscience. And the conscience doesn't say, you better not do that or God's going to get you. The Holy Spirit within you just says it's wrong and that should be enough. Because we have a heart to love our God, because we have a heart to serve our King, when it's wrong, it's just wrong. The problem is if we are not going to be led by the Spirit, we too will have to find ourselves in a place of consequence. When in Romans 13.5, when it talks about submitting to the government, it says not for wrath's sake, but for conscience' sake. Because if you're really going to be a child of God, if you're going to be governed by His Holy Spirit, then we are not to say, what are the consequences if I do this wrong thing? That's for the unsaved world, because it's the only way they'll obey something, is to make the consequence bad enough that they won't do it. On the other side of it, as a Christian... We should be people that God makes really clear, hey, if it's wrong, it should just have a distaste in our mouth. The problem is some of us were really good at being bad and we developed a taste. I mean, there are people out there that drink coffee. 
Sorry. You know, and it's like, I'm not exactly sure how it is that, uh, anyways, I shouldn't go there. But I mean, it's, you know, it's like I've watched people that the first time they drink it, their face is scum, and they turn into like a sponge potato or something. And it's like, get this face. And then somewhere down the line, the third and fourth time, it's like, I'm getting used to the taste. No, look at If you just naturally like the taste, glory to you for it. But I mean, but as far as, the, you know, and you feel like, I'm just still trying to get used to the taste of this bitter, sour, hot thing. And the only reason I say that is somewhere down the line you develop a taste for it. Now, for me, my, I develop a taste for spicy things. I, I really like spicy things. And by the way, I didn't even really eat spicy things until I was teaching secondary school. Because I would have lunch with my students because nobody else would. And, and as a result of that, I, as I did, every time I went out to the, to the restroom, to the toilet, I'd come back and my food was gone. So I'm like, how am I ever going to eat food if I ever have to go to the toilet? So I decided I would start eating spicy food. And you could always tell who stole your food because they're the kids sweating in your room. And that's kind of how I developed it. But I developed a tolerance for it. And the reason I say that is, even as a Christian, once God plants his Holy Spirit, we can develop a tolerance to not hear his Holy Spirit. And what happens at that point is we find ourselves again in that place where we have to actually experience consequence to our actions. God, and listen, if God can steer you with a feather, he will not use a sledgehammer. God never uses excessive force. If God can move you with a whisper, he will not have to shout. But if God has to shout, that's never pretty. So understand, if God ever does something and it's, a, it's drastic, we should probably ask ourselves, God, what am I, have I been that immovable, that stubborn that you would have to get so brave with me as this to steer me. Now, even then he does it out of love. Look at when my children were young, I'll, I'll use one of them because I, you know, I don't want to embarrass Tay so much. So we'll just say anonymously Ron Bay. Uh, you know, there were times where she just had this natural tendency to do things like run and she was really quick. So there was one time where I was, I was putting in the car seat and the door was open and Tay was beside me and she decided to take off running. No direction safe, right in the middle of traffic. Now, in a moment like that, you don't, it's like, you can't go, excuse me, darling, would you please consider reversing face and coming to your safety? She, by the time you said, excuse me, she would have gotten clobbered by the first SUV rounding the corner. Sometimes you have to make a quick, stern move. Now, it was nothing to her danger. It was nothing violent. It was just something like we just, I just scooped her up really quick. And there are times where the Lord will do that with you. In our text here, it seems to me that the guy didn't have a problem stealing from mom. He didn't have a problem holding 1,100 pieces of silver. But once she started putting the consequence of a curse on him, that was another story. Now, in regards to the area of curses... It might be important to know, well, what about me as a Christian? How does that play out? Well, please understand, in Proverbs 26, 2, it says, like a flitting sparrow or a flying swallow, so a curse without cause shall not light. Have you ever seen a sparrow try to land? They're terrible. They bounce like a ball. They're not, I mean, there are some birds, if you watch them, usually the ones with the wider wingspans. Man, it's like, it's, it's like ballet. You know, they're coming down and they open them up. It's like, whoa. 
and it's like you can almost hear the strings play, and they just kind of land really gentle on the ground, barely does anything. And then there's the sparrow. The sparrow's like, Wah! and I love that because when it says, by the way, that Jesus takes note or the Father takes note of every time a sparrow lands or it lights or falls, we tend to think that's almost like, you know, a sparrow's kind of up in its tree and it's like, ah, and then it falls over and dead, and God's like, take note of that. But it's literally every time a sparrow's trying to land, every time it bounces. I mean, it's like if you've ever seen one of those children that can't keep still, and every time they're just bouncing around all over the place, that's how a sparrow tries to land. Imagine God's like, I, t- I take special note of every time that baby takes that step, even though there's 100, 100 of them per second. And that's the whole concept of that. Now understand here, God makes really clear, there's nobody that can curse you when God is your shepherd. You know, it's been said that, you know, there was a girl that I knew that had given her life to Christ. We watched her, and she, next door to her was a witch. I mean, you know, not like that was her appraisal of her. That was what the woman called herself. She even, now, I don't know where you can go and buy a pointy hat, but she got the whole thing, pointy hat, broom and all. Not like she ever flew in it, but, you know, she was way, she was like way into it. She was really unstable. Well, I just remember this girl had gotten saved. She tried to share Jesus with her next door neighbor, and she came home, and she looked under her, she noticed something was really weird about her welcome mat, and under her welcome mat was a pair of her underwear with pepper in it. And she became very keenly aware that what had happened is her next-door neighbor broke into her house, took a pair of her underwear, put pepper in it, and put it under her doormat, which apparently is a curse. I don't know. I haven't seen the Harry Potter films to tell you. But I can tell you this. She gives me a call, and she's a bit frantic. She's a brand-new believer, and she's like, oh, my goodness, this gal's put a curse on me. You know, she's, you know I've got these pair of my underwear. Is this dangerous? And I says, if you put them on, yes. But no, no curse thrown against you or flung against you like a flitting sparrow. No curse without cause shall land on you. You won't have to worry about it. But in this case, we're living in a time where everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And what's interesting, and please hear me, is what, think about what superstition is. What superstition is, is somewhere inside of us, we have this drawing to the supernatural. And if unless God defines it for us, it's just going to spook us out. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh my goodness, you broke a window. You know, that's seven years. Or mirror, that's seven years. And if you broke some oil, that's another seven years. Italian, that's a big one for that. Now, what if you broke a mirror with a jar of oil and that spilled on it? That's 14 years sooner or later. You're not going to live long enough to get past your bad luck. And that's what happens when you have no relationship anymore and then you have to make up your own rules. So here's the story, and we'll start moving through a little quicker, but we kind of put things, we had to put things into to, to sort of context. The guy comes up, and this is how he's introduced. Mom, I know that I stole that, ele- that 1100 that you clearly, someone stole from you. Oh, that was me. You put a curse, and because of that, I took it back. How does mom respond to that? Notice what she says. Verse 2, may you be blessed by the Lord, my son. And what you're going to find, by the way, is how quickly and cavalier God's name is being used all throughout this text. People don't have a problem using God's name in vain when there's no real clear Christian or no clear godly stance on who his name is. I mean, let's be honest. We know this. If you hear his name spoken in public, it's more likely used in blasphemy than it is in praise. So, when he had returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mom, his mom said, I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a molded image now, therefore, I will return it to you. Quick question. Here's a quiz. How much did the boy steal? 1,100 shekels. 1,100 shekels. How much did the boy steal? 
1,100 shekels. Mom said I had wholly dedicated this to the son. So she goes like, this was already yours. I only dedicated. So how much do you think mom's going to dedicate of that 1,100 shekels? 1,100 shekels. If it's wholly dedicated, whole means all, right? That's kind of, the, you know, like when you read things that say like whole bread, I always kind of thought, well, you'd be a fool to buy anything else. Why would you buy something that's like, it's not whole bread. What's the rest of it? Well, anyways. So she's like, I had already dedicated. And listen, here is a standard that we could miss in this. When we actually don't have the relationship with God that we intend, we try to, to get from God what he already wants to give us, what already is ours. And you find that happen a lot. You're working for something God already wants to give you. And I love that about him. God's like, why are you spending so much time not being with me, trying to get my favor when I already love you? If you'd spend time with me, you'd be getting it anyway. So I already dedicated that 1100 wholly over to make a carved image and a molded image. Now, therefore, I'm going to give it back to you, son. Thus, he returned the silver to his mom. And then the mother took 200 shekels of silver and gave it to the silversmith and made into a carved image and a mold image. And they were in the house of Micah. Wait a minute. Did you catch that? I guess wholly dedicated doesn't mean the same thing that it does to me. When you stand before the Lord and God says whole, he means whole. Interesting, because do you know the Greek word for whole? Sozo. It's the word we use for saved. When God saved you, he made you whole. Please, 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 I want to talk to all y'all single folk for a moment. Please never get caught in the trap of thinking another person is going to complete you when Jesus has made you whole. And telling God, God, you need to give me somebody or I'm going to die alone when Jesus died to be with you. Think that through. That's harsh. And here it is. And she's like, yep, I had already planned to take that, that 1100 and wholly dedicate it. And I was going to make idols and so forth with it. So uh, he gave it back to mom. mom and she's like, OK, so wait a minute. So give it back to mom. And then mom took 200 shekels of silver and gave it to the silversmith. Now, to put things into perspective, just to kind of make it clear, though, we started with 1100 shekels, again, 4,365 pounds, 90 pence. 200 shekels is now 793 pounds and 80 pence. So that's kind of where they're different. We went from 43, 4,400 to about 800. That's not whole as far as I'm concerned. But you kind of get the idea here that when we start talking to the Lord and we start making things up ourselves instead of letting God define it, and we say, God, you have everything, but he doesn't have much, God knows the difference. Just the same way we can look at this and say that's clearly not the same thing. When we tell God, God, I really want you to have all of me, but really what we mean is that we want, I want you to have all the parts of me I really don't want anyways. We're a lot like Saul that says, well, you know, we killed all the stuff we didn't really want anyways, and we saved the rest. Now, God actually looks and he, and he says some interesting things about idols, but one of my favorites is from Isaiah 44.10. says, who would form a God and mold an image? Problems of nothing. Surely all of his companions would be ashamed. All the workmen, they are just men. Let them be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear and they, they shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith with his tongs takes a coal and he fashions it with his hammers. And he works it with the strength of his arm. And even so, he's hungry and his strength fails and he drinks no water and he's faint. This is a guy, this is the guy that's going to make your God is a guy that's going to pass out like everyone else. The craftsman stretches it out with his, stretches out his rule and he marks it out with chalk and he fashions it with plain. 
And he marks it out with a compass and he makes the figure of a man according to the beauty of man that it may remain in the house. And he cuts down cedars for himself. Takes a cypress and an oak and he secures it uh, among himself. He says he secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. And he plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. And then he, it shall be for man to burn. He shall take some of it and he warms himself. He kindles it and bakes bread. Yet indeed he makes a god and worships it. And he makes a carved image and he falls down before it and he burns half of it in the fire. And he eats meat with it and roasts meat and he's satisfied. And he warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god. His carved image, he falls down before it and worships it. Prays to it and says, Deliver me, you're my god. You can see God going, Do you ever see how ridiculous this must look from my perspective? You cut a tree down, you cut it in half, and you threw half of it in the fire. The other half of it you had to nail down so it didn't fall over, and then you covered it to try to make it pretty because it wasn't without it. How do you know you even have the right half? And here you are bowing down. You should have been bowing. It's like, you know, you, half of it you did something good with it. You put it in the fire, and you ate because of that. The other half of it, you put it. You had to do all of this work to it, and then it's going to help you. Think that through. So this is what Micah did, verse 5. Micah made a shrine and he made an ephod, an ephod, if you will, which is like sort of a priestly apron, and household idols, and he consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. Notice the next thing. A shrine, by the way, for what's like the would be. It's house. It's basically he had a house of idols now. But that's the case. Even when this is, we always have to find somebody to lift up. And please hear me in this. Someone's going to have to be your rep. And there's the problem is even when you're like, I don't want Jesus to represent me and you know, I'm going to kind of be a, I'm going to hunt alone and I'm going to be kind of a, my own thing. Sooner or later, you're going to find somebody else to worship. And that's just the way it works. Interesting. Dad has done that with his son. And this is when God inserts then. In these days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's interesting because this is really kind of the first mention of both no king in Israel and everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. And he does it where he's like, look at the spiritual lunacy of this. You know what Micah has done during this spiritual free form? He has done his own house church. Have you noticed that? That's basically what he's done. He's gone to the place where he's disaffiliated himself from the tabernacle in Shiloh, in Shiloh. There's no allegiance now to anything else but his own house. So he can make it up in whatever he wants, which includes his own priesthood, which includes his own state of right and wrong, which includes whatever he thinks is going to be good or bad. That's his own house church, and that's kind of the way this plays out. Think that through. Now, look, and I'm not saying if a person's trying to do some form of house thing, but listen, there's so much more to church than just doing something in your house. Part of what God calls us to is to join together so that we can actually try out for ourselves how to serve each other. And you can't do that in your own house. If the only thing that you set up is so that you have control over it, it kind of gets a little rough when you're standing before the Lord and actually calling him Lord. Now, please hear me in this. This place, Shiloh, Shiloh, I want to give you a little bit of background for a moment, and we'll walk back into our text, because from this point now, we start to meet the, we meet the star of the show, the Levite for hire. Understand that once Israel passed, crossed the Jordan from the east, they set up camp in Gilgal, and it was the place of consecration. But that we don't read that they set up the tabernacle there. They would go ultimately to Shiloh, to rest, to Shiloh, to a place in Samaria today that they would go and set up the tabernacle. And it became then the hub, the spiritual center, until, by the way, David's day, when he would change all of that and make Jerusalem the capital. 
Now, consider this. In Joshua 18, that was where they assembled together, set up the tabernacle and met there. By Joshua 18.10, that's where they all met to divide the land that had been conquered. By Joshua 22, the next time we see it was when all of the tribes of the West gathered together to go to war with the guys in the East because they heard a rumor about this altar, if you remember. It's interesting because you really don't read much about Shiloh after that in regards to anyone being there until 1 Samuel 3. When Samuel speaks the true word of God about judgment to Eli and his sons. At that point we read this. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Interesting. That means in the entire time of Judges, not once do we read ever God showing up at Shiloh. Shiloh. Not once. Not in between the time when Joshua brought them in to the time of, actually, to be honest, into this, until Samuel. You're really not going to see it. What you're going to see is mayhem. Now, let's meet our second character. Verse 7. There was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah. Now that's the place, Bethlehem and Judah, of the family of Judah. He was a Levite and he was staying there. Stop. He's a homeless Levite? He's a roaming Levite? We don't know. What we're going to find is he makes up his own rules, too. But in the free-for-all, one of the things you do find is that the priests are neglected. Often what happens when everybody kind of... The reason we do a free-for-all is because we want to be selfish, if we're going to be honest. And when we want to be selfish, what you find are that people that have dedicated themselves to serving others will never be cared for the way. Ill-provided while imposters are adulated in the place. And according to, by the way, for what's with Joshua 21, that it's clear in regards to Levitical cities, there were supposed to be 40 two Levitical cities with six added to that that were cities of refuge. That's 48 cities for a Levite to live in. They were given to him. They couldn't own the land, but they were to live there. Now, the reason I say that is, is that this guy is roaming, but he's not in any of those Levitical cities. He's passing through Judah. And it says then, verse 8, the man departed from the city of Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he could find a place. Then he came to the mountains of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, as he journeyed. He's a gun for hire for roaming religion. And Micah said to him, where'd you come from? And he said to him, well, I'm a Levite from Benjamin and Judah, and I'm on my way to find a place to stay. Micah said to him, well, dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me, and I'll give you ten shekels of silver a year, a suit of clothes for your sustenance. And the Levite went, and oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Put this into perspective. Okay, I'll give you a place to stay and I'll feed you. I'll give you some clothing. And I'll pay you an annual salary of... Ten shekels. Now, wait a minute. How many shekels did the kid steal from his mom? 1,100. Who's offering to pay this guy's salary? The same guy. Don't miss that. Okay. Now, of the 1,100 shekels, how many of them have been spent on an idol? Or an idols? 200. So how many does he have left? That's simple math, right? 900. 900 of them, but don't worry, it's not going to cost you much. Ten shekels a year. That means he can, he can serve them for 90 years. So putting into perspective, 1,100 shekels again, 4,365 pounds and 90 pence. The 200 shekels she did to make the idols, again, 793 pounds, 80 pence. So what, he, what is this guy's annual salary? 39 pounds and 69 pence. That's even worse than some of the guys we know that are barely paid in our fellowship. 
And in this, this poor guy isn't getting, this guy is not making 40 pounds a year. Okay, you're like, well, he's getting a place to stay and so forth. Oh, good. Well, you have spending money, 40 pounds a year. Think that through. That is not four pounds a month. Yeah, you get it. So the guy comes in. But notice he says, come and be a priest and a father to me. So did he fire his son? And this is what happens, by the way, is that you're always looking for the next better thing. When you don't let God set the standards, what will happen is in this free-for-all, it's always a fight for what you think is going to best bless you. Because it's always going to be about you when it's a spiritual free-for-all. We don't throw ourselves down to God. What we do instead is we just go, well, what serves me best? Well, I had a son doing it for a while. Now, why do you think he had a son? My guess is he probably had the son doing it because he could tell the son what to do. I mean, he lives in his house. His father has authority. But this guy, he says, come and be a father over us. I mean, which is interesting that he would use this language here now more than once. And then he says this at the end of the chapter. Micah says, now I know that the Lord will be good to me because I have a Levite in the house. Well, really, a Levite is priest and that's going to be. Now, notice again the superstition. The moment you think, and you know people that are like that, you're like, oh, you're a man of God. You're a woman of God. My day is going to be good if I just hang out with you for a little bit. Yeah, you know, that, good, that goodness is just going to rub right off. What's sad is, is that all of this is because God wants a relationship with man. And what man wants, listen, in the last 20 years, there's been this big movement to say that man is seeking after God. But the scripture makes really clear man is not seeking after God. He says there is no one who seeks after God. You'd say, well, what about those seeker churches? I'm like, I don't know. But I can tell you this. Man is seeking after the things of God without God. That's what he's looking for. Man wants peace. He wants joy. He wants love. He wants those things. And he'll get them anywhere he can get them other than God. So we drink to try to find peace. We chase after sex and relationships to try to find love. And you should realize the reason why the world's in the mess it is is because it's not going to the one person that created that appetite for him. And it's like drinking salt water. The more we chase after it, the less it's going to happen. We will not find satisfaction there because God never created it for that. Everything in this world is temporary. How could something temporary satiate an eternal appetite? Think that through. If God has placed within you eternal appetites, nothing temporary can satisfy them. That includes, by the way, a mate. That includes a job or power or money or stuff or whatever. Hey, those things can make your life a little nicer and more comfortable. But the appetites God has placed within you can only be, because they are eternal appetites, can only be met by an eternal menu. Well, now I think God's going to really bless me. So we end, the, we end the chapter for a moment. And what we have here, if you think about it, is a guy that thinks his house is going to be blessed because now he's hired a, a Levite from the tribe of Levi. He's of the priestly tribe for less than 40 pounds a month or a year. Now, God reintroduces it that tells us it's going to get crazier for chapter 18. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites were seeking an inheritance for itself to dwell in. For until that day, their inheritance among the tribes of Israel had not fallen to them. What? The tribe of Dan had not claimed any land. Now, Dan had been given land, by the way. It's important to recognize that. Joshua makes really clear that there was land allotted to them. They just didn't like it. Interesting, by the way, a quick backstory. If you remember when Jacob, Israel, 
had his, his 12 sons. He initially started with two wives. They were sisters, and one he really loved. Beautiful in face and form, Rachel. And then there was weak-eyed Leah. But when Rachel was bearing forth no children, she offered then her maidservant named Bilcha. Bilcha then, you know, Jacob being, you know, that great, mighty man of great integrity, he says, sure, sounds like a great idea. And with that, she bears forth two children to it, and the first of them is Dan. He says, now I know God's going to judge because... Now, God, what she says is, listen, now I know he's heard my case. He will judge my case. He's finally given me a son. This is what Rachel is saying, because her maidservant has born forth, and the oldest of them is Dan. When the prophecy is made about him in Genesis 49, when Jacob is sort of sealing blessings on them as he started sending off, this is what he says about Dan. Dan shall be a serpent along the way. He'll judge his people of the tribes of Israel. He says he'll be a serpent of the way, a viper of the path, a bites the horse's heels so that the rider shall fall backwards. Does that sound like a positive thing to you? It really doesn't to me. We do have this redeeming moment in Exodus 31 of the two men that were overseeing the construction of the tabernacle, Bezalel and Ahaliab. Ahaliab was actually from the tribe of Dan. But in Leviticus 24, there was a woman who had a son who blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed, and that was from the tribe of Dan, Leviticus 24.11. We find, by the way, the leader of the tribe of Dan, according to Numbers 34, when they were looking at their standards, was a guy named Buki, which, by the way, means wasting, who is the son of Yogli, which means he is exiled. Now, who names your son, I'm going to exile you, or he is exiled? But, of course, the most popular, famous part of Dan to this point has been really um, Samson, who was from the tribe of Daniel, which, of course, we've already seen. Interesting, there'll be no mention of the tribe of Dan, of course, in the New Testament. And when the 144,000 are assembled in Revelation 14, the tribe of Dan is not mentioned. When Israel went to fight Deborah sings her song, Deborah and Barak, and Judges 5, she says in the middle of the song, why did Dan remain on ships? They were supposed to come and fight and they didn't. So, for what that's worth. Now, these people are roaming and they're looking, but please hear me in this for a quick moment and we'll walk through this. Daniel had a place, but they didn't like it. So they went roaming. And here is the problem. And I want to say it from, and let me, please be patient with me on this and it'll walk right to where we are. We're in a very awkward place, our family. And I would really love prayer for my children, specifically because, you know, where the Lord's put us. But please understand, we're in this strange place because we do not belong to England yet, right? As far as England's concerned, they're, they're definitely not embracing us and opening their arms and saying, welcome, come. So what's happening is, is it's like, oh, they pulled their license. Now we're going to have to do this again. Now they pulled their license. Okay, we have to do it again. Pray for Daniel, our Daniel Taylor, of course, who is overseeing everything to try to keep us into the country. But we really don't belong to America either. So think about where we're at at the moment. We're in a, this really weird place in between. Because we, it isn't like we, can, we don't look at America and look at, at home. If you know Ruthie at all, she's definitely not American. She doesn't think like American. She barely talks like one. She has no interest in going back to America. I look at that and I realize it isn't like you look at that and there's, there are no strings attached to America. If anything, it's Suzanne's parents. And they're in their 80s. 
But on the other side of it, it isn't like we really can actually just put our head on the pillow and say, here it is, Britain's our home, as much as our heart is there. So we're in this funky place in between. Now, in our case, it's because of, well, I don't want to say it in this, but it was like, it isn't because of us. It isn't like we're like, well, I don't know if I really want to be British. That's not it at all. It's because of the, the opposition. And I understand there's an awful lot of people making aliyah, if you will, to England. But wouldn't it be nice? I mean, if we could have our way, what do you think we would want? Well, if we could have, in that, that context, if we could have anything, what do you think we'd, we'd want? We'd want the queen to give us a call on the phone and say, come and come, come over for tea. Uh, I won't be offended by whatever your daughter says. Uh, and... Uh, because that, that alone could probably get his kicked out of the country. But, uh, you know, and, and not like it's anything anti-English. She's just, she's just who she is. But, and say, welcome, welcome home. Right? So where's the only place where we could feel remotely at home? We have two options. One is we could go try to find American things. But that really doesn't work if you've left that place and you don't belong there anymore. So what's the only place that could feel like home in the U.K.? Here, this is it. This is the only place we could call home at all, if you think about it. And that is a really funky place to be. I'm just being honest. It's a funky place to be because you really feel like, and I understand why pastors that come from the States, they, they feel so lost. Because it's not like they have anything that they feel like they've attached to. You know. Now, granted, we could say, well, from an esoteric or you know, from a beautiful spiritual perspective, well, let me go there for a moment. Because this is what happens when we go with a spiritual free-for-all is the moment we said yes to Jesus, we pledged allegiance against the world we came from. We've, we've, said, we've basically said we are never, ever, ever getting back together. That's what we said. And so we looked at that and we, we meant it. We changed our number. We stopped taking texts and the whole bit. But what happens if we don't make claim to follow Christ like we should? We're like the Danites. God's like, I've got a place for you. I've got a place ordained for you. And you're like, nah. But the moment you say no to God's will, then you're stuck in this funky place in between. In between. And that is a really rough place to be thinking through. And that's where these Danites are. You know, if you're ever walking, in, I'm a big, I love this one. I love it, especially in the sea. And you know, you kind of walk out, and there comes this point well, you're walking on the sea and you don't know. I mean, it isn't like you can see the incline, but you're walking on the beach. The water's getting higher and higher. And there gets to this point sooner or later where the ground drops off and your body kind of goes into this. Uh, right. Because you know, at that moment, you have two options. Let's say if you're going from one place to another and it's like there's you know that on the other side of it, there's ground again. And that's where you're trying to get to sooner or later, somewhere in that you go oh, from this point on. It's going to take a different kind of effort to keep going in this direction. Or if I really wanted to be lazy or, or wimpy or whatever, I could just try to fight my way back to where I was. Oh, okay, fine. I'm on ground again. Well, understand, when we give ourselves to the Lord, what happens is God's even Holy Spirit, what happens is it wells up in us in such a way that it lifts us off the ground and we don't feel like we have that footing. You know, and we're like, what in the world? What am I doing? What am I doing? What am I doing? And we kind of get to that place and we get this like mild panic and God's like, look it, there's a whole new way we're going to move forward, but you got to go with me in this because if you don't move forward the way I'm, I'm calling you to, what's going to happen is you're going to fight this current and then you're just going to be a mess. And that's where Dan is right now, not Dan Taylor. This is where, uh, this is where the tribe is right now. They're kind of wandering around 
just trying to find a place. And God says, I've got land for you. And they're like, nah, I don't want that. So they have never, I mean, here's Israel settling into the land, and Daniel has never found a place to rest. And this is what it looks like when you don't really hand yourself over to the Lord, but somehow in it you're still trying to, you know, you're still trying to play favorites on both sides. Because what happens is you get to this place where you just can't rest. There's no rest in that. Because you're trying to keep both sides happy. I don't understand that. When you read those stories about these guys that are like married to two different people and neither one of them know of and you think, well, when does the guy sleep? Or does he sleep all the time? And if so, where does he get money? I mean, you know, how does that work? And they're like, well, he said that he worked nights, you know, and so, but then he was at the other place. And you kind of realize this is what we do when we try to, you know, flirt with the world and Jesus at the same time. It's like we're exhausted. And he's just like, you know, why don't you just take this place and interesting notice where it is again. Verse 2, the children of Dan sent five men of their families from their territory. Now, this is their, notice it says their territory. Excuse me. Oh, my goodness. From their territory, because that's where this is the land allotted to them. And you know where the land allotted to them was? Zora and Eshtaol. Why is that so important? Because that is exactly where Samson was from, and that is where Samson was buried. And if you remember, these two places, this place that's, you know, that means in essence like this kind of wasting to this place of just kind of diseased and, and desiring. And in between these two places was where Samson was buried, and it's where these guys are now trying to find another place. So, what they said is they said, go search out the land. They went to the mountains of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and they lodged there. But remember who's with Micah at this moment? His priest for hire, his Levite that he's paying 40 pounds a year for. While they were in the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. Did you get that? So wait a minute. This Levite has some history with the Danites? It doesn't say they even recognized his face. They heard his voice and they're like, hey, that sounds like that Levite guy. Which, by the way, nowhere in the text do we get his name. So they turned aside and they said to him, well, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What do you have here? They said to them, well, thus and so Micah did for me. He's hired me. And I've become his priest. So they said, well, please inquire of God that we may know whether this journey will be going on and will, go will be prosperous. And the priest said to them, well, go in peace. The presence of the Lord be with you on your way. So the five men then went and departed for Laish. Now, this is, and this is our last kind of major point on this. I'd like you to see how dangerous, and yet how it's only dangerous from God's perspective, but from them it wasn't. This place, Laish. They saw the people there and how they dwelt safely. In a matter of the Sidonians, interesting. Sidonians, by the way, Jezebel, come from there. Quiet and secure. There were no rulers in the land that would put shame to them in anything. They were far from the Sidonians, and they had no ties with anyone. They were like what it says in 1 Thessalonians 5. When the Antichrist comes, the message will be peace and safety. Everyone will think it's all about being peace, peaceful and safe. And here we read it as quiet and secure. But the problem was, not that they were living a peaceful life. They were living an isolated, peaceful life. They had no ties with anyone. 
And because they had no ties with anyone, they were a sitting duck for attack. We talk about this and call this the Laish syndrome. This is the way it looks. Somewhere down the line, someone decides, well, what we're going to really do is, you know, we don't want to really have to get up and brave the weather and the people and all that stuff. Why don't we just kind of do church at home? And it's just going to be, you know, me and the kids and you. But the dad's really no priest or anything like that. What he is, is he's just somebody that's going to, we're going to watch a video. We're going to listen to something or whatever. And, you know, that's good enough. I mean, isn't that really what church is about anyways? It isn't about people and about meeting and about, you know, we're just going to make sure we get whatever it is the church is supposed to give us. And then what happens is the guy has a heart attack and the wife is like no way to cover the bills. And they've been saying, well, why go to the church? They only want your money. But the only time they show up at the church is when they want your money. And they're like, and now they're embarrassed because they're talking to total strangers. And they're like, I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills. And I'm totally a mess. And my husband just died. And when was the last time you were in any church? Like 20 years. And you watch this. And what happened is they're a mess. They have no one to fall on. Proverbs 18.1 says, and I remember it. I've always remembered it because I always thought when people turn 18, they try to figure out whether they want to be their own thing. And it says, a man who isolates himself seeks only his own desire And he rages against all wise judgment. You know what's crazy is? We could think we're doing it and being wise. And he's saying, you're only being selfish and crazy. That's what he's saying. You're like, yeah, but you know, there are messed up people around. God's like, yes, that's why you could fit in. Well, I just want to be alone. We all need our times to get away. That just can't be our life. Because sooner or later, hey, listen, sooner or later, you're going to need them. And there are friends that stay closer than brothers. But these people were sitting ducks. And it was so quiet and peaceful, it was utopic. But they wouldn't, and listen, they didn't even have a leader. Let's say to put them to shame, in other words, just like doing what's right in your own eyes, nobody to tell them what's right or wrong. But because they had no leader, they had nobody to fight for him either. Then the spies came back to their brethren at Zorah and Eshtaol. And their brethren, and they said to him, what's your report? And they said, arise, let's go against them. We have seen the land, it's very good. Would you do nothing? Do not hesitate to go and enter and possess the land. When you go, by the way, you will find a secure people in a large land. God has given it into our hands, into your hands. A place where there is no lack of anything that is on the earth. So 600 men of the family of the Danites went from there, from Zoranesh to Ol, armed with weapons of war. Then they went up and encamped at Kirath Yerim. We'll know that place much more specifically in 1 Samuel because it'll be the place where the ark will make its resting home until David takes it to Jerusalem, by the way. Therefore, the place was called Menachah Dan, or the camp of Dan, to this day. Sorry, Machanech Dan. Uh, there it was, west of Kirath Yerim. And they passed from there to the mountains of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to spy out the country of Laish answered and said to their brethren, Do you not know that there is in these houses an ephod? Household idols, carved image, molded image. Now therefore consider what you should do. He's like, hey, by the way, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but there's a guy and he's got a flat screen and he's got a really nice system and he happens to have a priest and some idols. You can decide what you want to do yourself. 
So they turned aside, came to the house of the young Levite man, to the house of Micah. Interesting, they call it now the house of the young Levite. And they greeted him. The 600 men armed with their weapons of war who were of the children of Dan, they stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to spy out the land went up, entering there, and they took the carved image, the ephah, the household idols, and the molded image. The priest stood at the entrance of the gate with his 600 men who were armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house to look for the carved image, the ephod, household idols, the molded image, the priest said, oh, what are you doing? Here's a great answer for you. They said, don't oh, be quiet. Put your hand over your mouth and come with us. In other words, don't make any noise and nobody gets hurt. And be a father and a priest to us. I don't know why, but every time I read this, I keep thinking of Peter Pan. No, you be our mother, Wendy. It is better for you to be a priest to the household of one man or that you be a priest to the tribe of the family of Israel. So the priest's heart was glad. And he took the ephod, the household idols, the carved images, and took the place among his people. If you have a priest that could be stolen from you, you've got the wrong one. And if you've got a God that can be stolen from you, you've got the wrong one. If you have to guard your God, you've got the wrong one. It's Imagine, it's sort of like one day, Micah's going to wake up, and his gods are gone. His idols are gone. His ephod is gone. And his priest is gone. Boy, that's a lot to process. Because Danites came and said, well, what would you rather work for? This one guy, how much is he paying you? Or for a whole tribe. Now, aren't you thankful we have a high priest who is tempted in every way, yet without sin? Who sympathizes with our weaknesses? Who is forever a high priest in the order of Melchizedek? Who lives and sits at the throne of God, forever making intercession for us? He can't be stolen from us. He's clearly shown his dedication at the cross. He will forever be that for us. And I can't help but think of Rachel, who, had her, who stole the household idols when she ran from her father, Laban, Laban, in Genesis 31. So, let's close this up. They turned and departed. They put their little ones on livestock and their goods in front of them, which tells us that they considered the danger more from behind, which is the house that they had just ransacked. And they were a good way from the house of Micah. The men who were, at the ho- who were in the house, near Micah's house, gathered together and overtook the children of Dan. And they called out to the children of Dan. They turned around and said to Micah, What ails you that you have gathered such a company? They said, You've taken away my gods which I made and the priests. And you've gone away. Now what more do I have? How do you say to me what ails you? Children of Dan says, Don't let your voice be heard among us lest angry men fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Children of Dan went their way. So in other words, they're like, Hey, so what's wrong with you? And they're like, what's wrong with me? You took my gods, you took my priest, and you're asking me, what else do you, what else could you take? And they're like, hey, shut up and go home. And Micah went, okay. So, since the children of Dan went their way, and Micah saw that they were too strong for him, and he turned back and went to his house. Verse 27. So they took the things that Micah had made. The priest would belong to him and went to Laish. To a people quiet and secure, there's our term again. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And you think, well, if they want to live there, why would they burn the city with fire? Because the people of Laish that would remain would never have a home to go back to there. It isn't like they go, hey, that's my house. That house will, have burned, will be burned with fire. Notice it says in verse 28, the note of it, there was no deliverer. Nobody to rescue them. They didn't want anyone over them. 
unless they had no one to protect them. And if you don't want anyone over you, including Jesus, who's going to stand for you in that time of challenge? Because it was far from Sidon. They had no ties with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Bethrechob. Bethrechob, by the way, to this day means street. Um, so the house on the street. So they built the city and dwelt there. And they called the name of the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their father, who was born into Israel. However, the name, of course, formerly was Laish, which means, originally the word means to knead bread. They use it in regards to an old lion. And the children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of their captivity of the land. The day of the captivity. And it says, So then they set up for themselves Micah's carved image, which he made, all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. This is how it ends. You know what it ends with? It tells us that Dan never, ever, not worshipped idols while they were there. From the moment they set things up there. And by the way, it'll be then, because that becomes the farthest north part of Israel, southernmost part being Bathsheba, and you'll notice that, so that it'll always say from Dan to Bathsheba, and the idea of that is from the far north to the far south is the idea. So that's actually said even before they've taken this. Now consider this. This very place here would be the place where they took these idols and they worshipped them. They will be replaced, by the way, in 1 Kings 12:29, after Solomon, if you remember, Solomon's son takes two tribes of the south and the renegade Levites, and the commander named Jeroboam takes the north, ten tribes. And when he does, he sets up idols in, by the way, Bethel. Bethel, by the way, being uh, just in the southern area for his territory. And then he sets the other one in Tel Dan. Which means that these golden calves, this will be replaced with a golden calf. And then they'll be replaced by them being taken captive. The entire time that Dan was there, they, were wind up, they wound up, listen, listen, listen. They wound up clinging to the tangible instead of embracing God. That's really the bottom line to it. And this is what it looks like when we get down to it. When we really close the chapter, what we see is you're either going to embrace God and trust these eternal things, or what's going to happen is you're going to say, no, no, I need stuff I can touch more. I need stuff I can feel more. I need to, to, to really experience this more. And what happens when you do that is you turn your back on God in such a way that you're the first to be captive. When, by the way, the, the uh, Syrians come to take them captive, they come from the north down into the territory, which means the first people conquered will be damned. But they were already, you know what Dan wound up being by the time that, that they were taken captive? They became just like Laish was. They were isolated just like Laish was. They had no connection with God like Laish was. They had no ties with anyone around them like Laish was. They were sitting ducks just like Laish was. They went, Dan went and conquered Laish. And then what happened is Assyria came and conquered Dan just the same way. Now the question is, what about you? What about me? As we close this, let me ask. We've been through a lot of text here, but is that you? Are you the kind of are you at the point right now where you just kind of you're going to be your own island, but then you die alone in this? In regards to this, we started this thing. I remind you by saying this was spiritual anarchy, a free for all, and in that free for all, we made up our own rules, thinking somehow that would make our life better. And what we showed in the end of it all is that we were actually 
Our life was just a mess by the time we wound up wandering around with no purpose or place, with no real peace, with no real rest, and we're sitting ducks for the attack. Is that really what you want? I don't. On the other side of it, what God really wants is for us to make our home in Him and Him to make His home in us. Jesus would say, I and you, you and me. And my prayer tonight is as Christ came here to our earth to die on, this, on a cross to pay our price is that we would willingly now let our own old lives die. Our old allegiance die so that we can see the resurrection power that He really ordains for us and embrace what is before us. Otherwise, we're going to find ourselves floating in the interim and having nothing. And you just don't want that. And I don't either. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for this beautiful text. I thank you, Lord, for the way you've gone before us in it and for the way, Lord, that you've made really clear in this that you have a message for us tonight and that message is one that speaks to us and challenges us to really not just leave what is behind but press forward to the upward call that you've placed in our lives. And we recognize, Lord, even in this, how horrible that idolatry is that we see here and what it's led to. But then on the other side of it, you tell us that even stubbornness is like idolatry. And we see that throughout this whole thing, this stubbornness. God, don't let that be us, please. Don't let us be people, Lord, that are so driven by these foolish things that we would find ourselves drifting and aimless and feeling, and feeling so lost that we would go to anything and anyone just to try to find something we could belong to, to find anything that will give us purpose. And we just feel like we don't even know what in the world we have no, we, like there's nothing where we're square in a world full of round holes. Tonight, speak to our hearts, God, and break through all of that and show us, Lord, that you have a place specifically and uniquely for each of us, individually. And Jesus, as you died on that cross for us with our, with our name upon your heart, our face before your eyes, Lord, individually, and you call for us to call out to you, please, tonight, Lord, please, get a hold of us and please, Please, Lord, don't let us be people who just want to sort of sneak in and out of this and not say, God, whatever you have for me, that's where I want to be there. I want to be there, God. Where I'm not making this up, but you're setting the rules. Where you give me purpose and you give me identity and you give me a place so that I know and and I'm not scattered and, and emotionally everywhere and just mentally out of it. But God, rather, where I have the peace that comes from resting in you, knowing, Lord, that as you make things clear, I know where I belong. For that to happen, Jesus, I need more than a Savior. I need need you to be Lord. So take your rightful throne upon my heart. And as you've resurrected and clearly you live to intercede for us, but take that lead now upon my life and lead me as you call me, I pray. I surrender myself to you. Let me be somebody, Lord, that doesn't just say, I've wholly dedicated, but really I'm only given, really in in, in essence, in this kind of, you know, 25%.
But please, please, God, make me for real. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, thank you for the privilege of being in the Word with you. I just love being in the Word with you. Read ahead. I want to warn you, the next section is definitely 15 <laughs> as far as movie rating. It is, it is honestly the strangest, if, one of, if not the strangest story in all of Scripture, in my opinion. That it gets that crazy. And if you don't believe me, read it for yourself. My recommendation is don't read it right before you go to sleep. But that's another story. And, uh, and please, please, be a blessing to each other. Let church be more than just listening to, one, to me talk, please. Be a blessing to each other. Pray for each other. Encourage. And I want to remind you, those who want to go out, we'll do that in the next 10, 15 minutes. We'll get everything ready for that. Uh, Sarah's here. Is Cam coming? Huh? Oh, okay. Well, Lord, we pray for Cam's friend who's on their way to the hospital. Lord, be with them and give them wisdom, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.